Welcome everybody to Way of Blade, the podcast. I am your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling History, and a writer on the Segunda Caeta blog, and I am uh, very happy to be joined today by my friend, Matt DiCarlo, a fellow writer on the Segunda Caeta blog, and uh, a big uh, wrestling enthusiast, fan, great writer, and uh, we're here to talk about one of his favorite wrestlers, and one of my, you know, solid guys I like a lot. Uh... Nick Bockwinkle versus Kurt Henning on New Year's Eve 1986 for the AWA title. Matt, how are you doing, my friend? Good. Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is so you're a Bockwinkle guy, right? He's I your am a, I am a Bockwinkle guy and um, I'm a Bockwinkle guy going back to the DVDVR AWA set. So, um, maybe about 10 years ago with this match was was number 1 on the set. That was um, 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe maybe nine years ago, oh my but it's God. somewhere around that. Yeah, when it that? got released, and, and you know, number two on the set was um, Blood on the Sand, which you know, to follow Will and Dean was one of the matches you did not put in the book. Oh, that's true. I got some. I have some Shawn Michaels things that I need to work through. Well, he gets uh, bloodied up, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I, to follow Will and Dean, look, there's probably going to be a way of the blade two at some point. I need to have some. Marquee matches in there, so yeah, I'll cover uh, I'll cover the rockers then. Um, this match is, I think, pretty relatively certainly not about blood, right? And in, in a way yeah. that you know, a lot of the matches in the book are blood is the main course of the meal. Uh, this is it's much more of an aperitif here. Yeah, the blood shows up 50 minutes in of a, of a 60 minutes match. 50 so. minutes of a 60 minutes. And, you know, I, I, I'm somebody at my advanced age. I, apparently the AWA set was 10 years ago. I don't know what's happened to how, how the sands have gone through the hourglass. But uh, um, who, you know, hasn't doesn't have a lot of time for super long wrestling matches. That's not something I am I can get very excited about. It's something I would get excited about when I was younger. I, you know, was very excited to watch Chris Hero and... Uh, CM Punk go 90 minutes or one of the, some of those long ROH matches and thought it was really... And now it's just like the idea of a match going that long it's kind of chills me to my bone a little bit. This is a really great long match. Like, it's a really great long match. It's a really watchable long match. Uh, yeah, you know, I had no problem going back through it. I, I wasn't sure because I haven't seen it for a little while and, and it was smooth and easy. Yeah, I mean, is this... Where do you think this lands on the greatest... 60 minute plus matches ever so i mean it's I a, actually, it's a yeah, contender I think, right i think it's the greatest and and i think um i can explain why i think it's the greatest um sure we'll this is a podcast that. about the match let's uh yeah. <laughs> All right. so, so i mean we'll, we'll cover it i think more in depth and, and break it down but to me what makes it work as much as anything else is that you can take any single moment from the match, um, you know, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, 25 minutes in, 35 minutes in, and you can take that moment, take a look at it in a vacuum and then extrapolate it back 10 minutes and extrapolate it forward 10 minutes and it fits. It all makes sense. You can see how everything led to it and you can see how it builds into what comes next while the match is still, you know, big stakes, while it's still hardly worked, you know, while it's still, um, you know, two masters, but, but, but what makes it work for me is the narrative. Um, you know, it's not one of those cases where you got Ric Flair just doing something for the sake of doing it or pop the crowd. You know, everything in there makes sense. It builds into a bigger moment. And um, I don't think you see that in a lot. And you knew that they were calling it in the ring. Um, so, you know, it's not one of those cases where they make it overwrought and they... Uh, sort of plan things out to a you know, nifth degree and it, it becomes sort of cinematic and you can see the strings. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I think it, it tells the whole story better than almost any 60-minute match from the little moments to the big moments while still feeling completely organic. There we go. Yeah, and I, you know, you're always going to have in a long match, like, I mean, I guess not always. I guess there's some Anami Toyota uh, Kyoko Inoue match that goes 60 minutes where they don't do yep. anything but everything but uh, spots the entire time. But you're always going to have mostly in long matches points where somebody's going to slow it down and work. I mean, the first five minutes of this match are 
six minutes of this match or Bachwinkle working a headlock. But goddamn, did Bachwinkle work a headlock? Talk about a guy who's always looking to adjust and Henning's always <laughs> looking to counter or that he like lifts his leg. I mean, just, you know, so incredible. It's something as simple as I've got a side headlock in you, on you. And we've seen a million wrestling matches where that's just a, uh, you know, a, mi- a minutes eater kind of move. Mm-hmm. And here it's like very, it's really compelling. Like maybe the best like side headlock section yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, that's the thing with Bach is that he's always on, he's always engaged. He's always working it. You know, he's got some of the best facial expressions in wrestling history that you just look at the guy's face and he's always into the moment when, um, you know, later on when Henning takes him over with an arm drag, you sort of see him clench his hand and sort of go, ah, he got me. You know, when he takes someone over, he's got that little look of, ah, I got him. Hmm. And, you know, he's constantly doing that. And Henning's a guy, I'm not a Henning guy for the most part. Although I really like him in the AWA, I think. But like mm-hmm. Mr. Perfect's not somebody I have a ton of time for. Uh, I'm probably a low voter on him as overall. But this is this is a hell of a performance. He is really great in the role of, you know, younger guy against older, crafty veteran. Trying to sort of, you know, you know find moments where he can sort of use his athleticism, find moments where he can show that he's got some tricks up his bag. I mean, a really, really incredible performance from a guy who I don't really know if he had any other performances at this level. This feels almost like in the NBA where you see a guy who's like, that guy scored 50 points in a game? You know, like, like, holy, holy hell, uh, you know. Uh, so I, this comes off of the uh, Hanson match earlier in the year which is another great Henning performance. It's one of the few sort of on, on kind of on this level where he just tried to survive Hanson. Um, and, but, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, a lot of, like even talking about the headlock, the, the reason why the headlock works is because it's Bockwinkle trying to shut down Henning's athleticism. You know, he always sort of is one step ahead of Bockwinkle when it comes to being able to recover quicker, being able to sort of throw a drop kick or being able to sort of come back. And uh, those first couple of minutes are definitely Bockwinkle trying that initial dropkick to the back, you know, a little bit of trickery because he'd been a babyface for a um, big chunk of the year, most of the year. And uh, he hits that dropkick out of nowhere, hits a slam, tries to get a pin. And then Henning come back and he sort of, you know, outquicks him. He sort of outwrestles him a little bit. And then Bockwinkle deals with that by uh, snapping on that headlock. Yeah. And um, maybe Tony Delk. Trying to think of your guys who had fifty point games never have again. I, I think Tony Delk may be a little bit of a shot. He may be more Andre Miller uh adding. I think he's one of those guys that really you know, the WWF ruined some guys' sure. work career. Neutered right? him. Completely neutered him. I mean, we know, talked about look at all the different interesting offense he has here and you know, all the different arm manipulations and things like that that he puts on. And there's none of that in his WWF work until maybe ninety three when he gets to work babyface again. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked a lot about that uh, in the Doug. We did the pot on Doug and Buzz Sawyer, me and uh, Will. It's the same thing. We're just like, oh, Doug and man, for a minute. And then Doug and for a long time. And Henning was a lot like that, too. And I think, yeah. I think you know, he was by the time he was in WCW, I think he had had some uh, uh, personal issues that sort of limited his effective and injuries and stuff that limited his effectiveness there in a place where you might think somebody would have a chance to do a little more interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't um, think really had it. You, know, you definitely get the opponents in WCW, but none of them matches turn out to be super interesting. And, you know, back with WWF, his entire 1990s basically married to a one-foot Kerry Von Erich and just bumping around to make him look <laughs> good. And there's, there's only so much you can do with that. Yeah, you know, one-foot Kerry Von there's probably a top ten one-foot Kerry Von Erich matches actually pretty good, right? He had one foot when he was working Lawler, right? Those are really great matches. I mean, Lawler, I guess, uh, is the guy. If you had to take, if anybody say this guy's got one foot and is on, uh, uh, and is taking five MDMA pills before the match, do something with him. Lawler's like, all right, I can do something with that. I, I mean, Lawler also wasn't in the WWF system, you know, doing those nightly house shows of the loops and everything else. So yeah, although you know, with Memphis, what did they 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 had to do? They'd wrestle, what, four or five times a week, right? They would, yeah. yeah I mean, those, um, that, that was a territory where you had lots of... I mean, that's the thing, I think, you know, about AEW, why Brian Danielson and CM Punk could have great-looking matches mm-hmm. as they're wrestling once a week, right? Yep. Or once every two weeks or something like that. The same thing with somebody like Dustin Rhodes. Uh, you know, I could have him. He doesn't have to be. He's not working 
house shows is gold dust, you know, five nights a week or something like that, right? He can, you know, wrestle once ever once a month and really save mm-hmm. it up, which is kind of, I think, a a, a reason why I think that kind of promotion as a work promotion really works in a way that I imagine Henning and Bachwinkle, for example, they probably had, you know, they, they, the AWA was a territory that was working a lot. Yeah, and Bachwinkle was pretty old. Not the, quite as much because this is during the Las Vegas tapings okay. and whatnot. Because uh, Bachwinkle was, how old is Bachwinkle in this match? He's 51. 51. That's, this is, this is a hell of a 51. Especially, this, this is, is 51 an, and 86. This eight, is an 80s and, 51, right? I mean, this yeah, isn't a, This isn't a, I don't know if Bachwinkle was ever, like, known historically as, like, a partier, but... Uh, I think he was more like a uh, martini and whatever else, you know? Like a cigar and a, and, yeah. a, and, a, and a rare steak. But it's not... He's not doing CrossFit. No. Uh, Bachwinkle, no. right? Like, he's a guy who... You know, so he, he was... Um, and he, this was pretty close to the end of his career, right? What? It was. You know, he sort of finishes up with handing into the next year, and that's more or less it. He's still really goddamn good. Uh, yeah. You almost wish Bachwinkle was a guy who was working in Mexico and could have had another 10 years of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, like, maestro matches uh, after this, right? Like, what, what would a 60-year-old Bachwinkle, who was still semi-regularly working lucha mm-hmm. memes, look like right. I mean, it feels like if Blue Panther or Black Terry or Negro Casas or Negro Navarro could still do it, Bachwinkle could have still done it too. I mean, that, that's the deal with Bach is that we don't have much of him before he's forty. You know, we uh, we have maybe one or two matches of him black and white, and then it goes into the seventies, and we have a few. So most of the stuff we have with him is in the eighties when he's you know deep into his forties, and right, that's we, where like, the case for him. That's his classic footage. Right, we do not have a lot of young Nikki Bockwinkle, the old lady's yeah, we favorite. We have a couple of matches, and you know, <laughs> he doesn't do too much, but yeah, we don't have much of that. That is and one of the great... Nothing of Hawaii, you know, in the 50s, or the 60s, and none of that. Yeah, the, uh, that's... Uh, young Nikki Bockwinkle, the old lady's favorite, is one of the great uh, wrestling gimmicks of all time. I wish we had a ton of that. I just I love mean, the idea of him as like a, you know, guy, you know who loves Nick Bockwinkle? The old ladies. <laughs> Well, that's up with um, Paul Bosch pretending to be Jewish to get the ethnic uh, <laughs> right. people behind him, and then he gets found out in a locker room or something. Yeah, that was the, uh, I think, a reporter. Uh, he comes out of the shower, a reporter looks down, uh, from like the forward goes, I don't, not sure about this, Paul. I don't know about that star, David, on your trunks when I see what's under your trunks. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, we don't have very much, of, I mean, the famous tag team, right, the Stevens Bach, we call tag team. We yeah. got we have very very little of that. Very right? little. I think there's like a Red Bastine tag. You know, there's a High Flyers tag, and there's a couple other things, but but not much at all. And of course, you know, the deal with Stevens is that he was he was the hard liver. You know, he was the the drinker. He was the fast driver. He was the guy who was completely burned out by the time we have any footage of him. Um, and the big bumper too. So you know, Stevens, you don't see anything. Bockwinkle and Patterson, who were Stevens' two partners, you see everything. You know, you can tell how amazing they were from their old man matches in a way that you can't with Stevens. Yeah, that's a, that's true. I mean, I don't know if we Stevens is one of those guys where with the greatest gap between f- the footage we have and the reputation he has, right? Because yeah. yeah, you watch the footage, like I don't I don't see it, but he certainly has that reputation of this guy. There's an issue of we don't have a you know, there's not a lot of early seventies AWA that exists out there. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably also a case that some guys can transfer and become more smart workers and some guys were just hard workers and you know that's what made them special and when that's gone there's not much left yeah that makes sense um, but yeah we, I can imagine I mean I have somebody who really enjoys really kind of washed up crusher and bruiser and I imagine like peak crusher and bruiser uh, versus like Stevens and Bachwinkle stuff was really incredible yeah but, but I mean, the interesting thing about Bachwinkle is he you know is is it is, he captured his first AWA title at 40, mm-hmm. which is, you yeah. know, then held it for through 40 through 45, which is pretty nuts if you really think about it, right? That, you know, you don't, somebody captured that, uh, a world title that late at that time. Right now, you've got, you know, everybody, everybody in NXT is 43, but, uh, you not know. Not anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not anymore. Yeah, that's right. For a while, everybody in NXT was 43. But, uh, uh, but now, you know, like, you, you'd think, most of your great world champions all held that belt in their twenty, early twenties, yep. mid twenties, right? I mean, yeah. how old? Yeah. Do, do we know how old? I mean, that's an answerable question. 
how old Ric Flair was when he captured his first world title. Had to be around thirty, right? I mean, let's see. So he captured like this is, again. Again, we can answer this. We can uh, answer this. Um, so he, I think he captured his uh, first world title in '81. He's like thirty-two. Yeah. All right. So. That's that's actually even a little older than I would have guessed, right? I think Lawler started, you know, his run on top of with, in Memphis when he was pretty young. Uh, most of your sort of iconic guys in the I mean, Hogan wasn't very old when he captured his first world title. Of course, you know, the thing you had to worry about when you were Bockwinkle in the 70s is that you had to get the title off of Vern. And how are you going to get Vern to agree to not be the champion? Of his own promotion, you know, Vern Gagne is not going to give up the title. He wants to be champion, right? And maybe, yeah, I mean, that's and he helped Vern held that title to really late, and you know, maybe Vern would drop it for a couple months to build a rematch. Um, and Vern was, you know, obviously, I mean, there there was a reason that the AWA was successful with him, right? He he wasn't like he was a bum or anything like that. Though so, you know, the Bachwinkle Ganya matches are some of my least favorite Bachwinkle matches. You know, those and the Hogan ones, which some people like, but you, you, they're completely um, serving the opponent. You know, Bachwinkle may get an eye rake in, he may get, you know, a tights pull, a couple of things here and there, but you don't really get to see him do much because he's just bumping all around for the boss or for the star. So, yeah. yeah. Those are my least favorite Bach matches, really. Those and the Brody matches, which are just terrible. <laughs> I uh, I think we're probably uh, as a, as a collective organization. Segunga is not a giant Bruiser Brody fans. No Brody, no. Ma- no Brody matches in my book. I, you know, I probably should have found one, uh, but I didn't really look that hard. Um, not yeah, not a guy who uh, uh, I, you know we talked about the gap between uh, reputation and footage. For Ray Stevens, Brody would be. They'd have to name that the Bruiser Brody Award, right? <laughs> like, yep. yeah, change the one the Observer has for best brawler and have it be guy who doesn't live up to his reputation the most gets the Bruiser Brody Award. And um, he's a guy like you know Henning is known for his selling or his bumping, um, and Brody's a guy who can bump. But the deal with Brody is that he would bump and then he wouldn't sell, so he would sort of invalidate everything that would happen to make him look tough. So and then his offense, you know, was what it was too. Sometimes it looked good, sometimes it didn't. But yeah, no, Brody is not a guy I had a lot of time for. And um, I think in a lot of ways, one of the matches a lot of people saw with Bogwinkle um, in you know the '90s and in the early 2000s was the Brody match. So he was a guy who his reputation, at least among our community, um, got a lot better after the AWA set. Yeah, I think a lot. Of, it's a good point. I, I think. Uh... I think he was, was like, again, one of those guys that... I I, mean, I remember this match. Because this aired on TV. Mm-hmm. So I do remember... I think I think this was a match I watched in 1986. Um, so the, the Observer said after it came out that... Um, and, and actually, the match was filmed in November. So we're actually at the 35th anniversary this week, next week of the match. But um, it aired, like you said, New Year's... And um, they th- said that, you know, people who like long matches will, will really like it, but everyone else will be very bored by it. That was kind of the Observer uh, take on it. Okay. Yeah. The Observer, another, uh, 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 Dave Meltzer's opinions on professional wrestling, not his reporting, might also be, uh, can capture the Bruiser Brody Award for the biggest gap between, uh, <laughs> between reputation and footage. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, decades and decades of uh, damage to wrestling, maybe. Yeah. Between that and sort of the Scott Keese of the world who took it forward with that kind of work rate, work rate primacy kind of mentality. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much. Like I said, I don't, I, I'm saying that as somebody who doesn't know how well his, uh, his opinions from the, the 90s age either. So I mm-hmm. certainly haven't done a lot of uh, uh, look backs into things I was writing in Death Valley Driver 26. But I imagine that you could certainly make a big list of things I said where you're like, oh, you, this is what you think, Phil? I know, I know there are certainly guys that I, at one point I was crapping on who have later turned into my, some of my favorite wrestlers. It wasn't because they got better. It's all the same footage. Yeah. Uh, right? Like, it's not like, not like my opinion on Tarzan Goto changed because there's a bunch of Tarzan Goto since I crapped on him that, I, uh, uh, that, he, that happened. It's just, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't looking at the right things. 
uh, for him, or, or you know, certainly, I mean, Fujiwara, I think, is probably one of the biggest examples of that. I think are the early, my early comments on Fujiwara were not particularly uh, helpful. I remember at one point, the, in the earliest Battle Arch reviews, Dean called it like fake UWFI. <laughs> Which is pretty funny considering, you know, like, you know, what our opinion, how our opinions on that have changed and our opinions of UWFI have changed. It's not something I particularly have a, a ton of time for as a promotion anymore versus everything else, which I think we when we looked at it askance in comparison to. Um, I don't know, it's a bit of a... But yeah, so the point is maybe uh, I should be a little more uh, generous with when I look back on Dave Meltzer saying this, this match is going to bore people. Uh, which seems insane because I am like I'm an example of that, right? I'm not uh, uh, somebody who likes uh, long matches. I would resemble okay. that remark, right? I don't want to. Yeah. I would want to watch a sixty minute. You watched, you watched a sixty minute uh, match the other day, the, recently, right? I did. I did. I watched the uh, Wheeler Yuta versus Daniel Garcia match, which was not the plan for the year. Let me tell you, I. Um, what happened is that despite all of our precautions, kids kids ended up with COVID at school. Everyone's okay now, but I got stuck isolating for about two weeks, stuck in a room, and um, I started going through the IWTV stuff. And um, yeah, I ended up watching Garcia versus Yuta, which was again. It How was does that compare to this? Ago. Um, so it was good. You know that match <laughs> is if. If I thought you'd actually do it, I'd say you guys should take a look at it for the match of the year, but it would probably end up around, you know, 18 or 19 or 20, and I'm not sure that's worth a 60-minute investment. Um, but it was really good. Uh, Garcia, you know, really honed in on the limb work. You know, they had dueling limb work as it went, which is one of the ways you can sort of make one of these matches work. Uh, his selling is excellent. You know, he, was, he did a lot of work um, basically with one limb down. Um, and made a lot of offense work in that, which is always really interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely timing things I would have done differently, which is actually not something I can say about the Bachwinkle-Henning matches that I think, and, you know, we can go over that in a bit. I think that they actually section out the match very effectively. And I thought some things in uh, Uta versus Garcia weren't quite the way I would have laid them out. You know, that they... They went into, you know, the limb work a little bit too early instead of fighting for it a little more. And, and if they had done that, they would have gotten some extra time on that. Um, and I think there was a real sense of them working for a draw towards the end, which you don't really, you don't know what's going to happen. I think in Bachwinkle Henning, between the blood, in between, you know, Henning having a little more of the athleticism and just that, that crazy sort of um, endless axe exchanges in the last few minutes. Um, but, but I, I think you got the sense, you know, once it got going that they were kind of working for the draw. So yeah, it was good. Um, I think it was an accomplishment for both guys. I think Garcia, who, who's definitely very young, um, definitely a, a feather in his hat. Yuda, I liked a little bit less, um, but he was okay. And, um, yeah, no, it, it was apparently a, you know, super hot building. Um, I was talking to you know, our buddy Dylan about it and he was announcing and he had no water and he was trying to announce a thing in an attic for an hour. And, um, it might have been the match that killed him, but it didn't, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, yeah, no, it, it was good. People should watch it. Okay. Well, I, look, maybe I, not us. I mean, if, look, I, if, you, if you're saying, it's, if you're saying uh, it's worth watching, I trust your opinion uh, on that. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it on at some point. Who, I don't know what that point is. But <laughs> that point might be a while from now. But I'll, if, I, I trust your opinion on those kind of things, especially because I trust your opinion on something like that where it doesn't feel like you would like it. So if you do, I mean, that's, that's sort of a good thing to when you're talking about uh, finding, you know, getting value from people's opinions. And I think one of the things about, you know, wrestling now is that it isn't an issue of anymore, certainly, of having to go find the, the sleaziest uh, video store in your home, in your neighborhood and hoping that they've got wrestling tapes like it was when I was growing up, and uh, you, were, you know, you, you don't have to like search out the video store that's seventy percent porn to find uh, to find Starcade, and it certainly it isn't even like it was when you know I was in my twenties and thirties, where you, you got to find a guy who's got a tape and find a trade he's willing to do, or find twenty bucks to send him or something like that. Now you can everything is available, right? Versus, and it is a lot more of an issue of curation. I do find kind of valuable sometimes. When people like things that I don't think they should like, that's usually a, a, a good sign. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if somebody, if if Rob Naylor likes a match that's a lot of mat work, well, that's yeah. probably pretty good, right? <laughs> Whereas if Rob Naylor likes a match that's got a billion eye spots, okay, well, that's supposed to be what he likes. I think, you know, mm-hmm. if, I, you, if I like something that, you know, that, if I like a match with a billion eye spots, uh, then that's probably worth checking out in a way that maybe you don't check out my opinion on two guys hitting each other really hard as much. Right? So that doesn't, you know, for a lot of times that's going to be in my wheelhouse, even if it's not that great. So I think that the fact that you're going, Phil, check out 60 minutes of guys in beyond uh, wrestling a draw. It's like, well, that's not something I would expect. You wouldn't like a mediocre version of that. The only problem with it is that at some point towards the end, they start to kind of lose the crowd and they start chanting, you know, funny things. And, you know, part of that's a crowd at this age, but you got to put that on some of the wrestlers too and what they did. And, and, you know, they, they, I'm not going to say they were working comedy spots, but the the crowd was chanting in a comedy way. And, you know, that is actually one, I'm not going to say it's an issue, but one concern I kind of have with the Bachwinkle ending match is that we don't get a great sense of the crowd. Um, just because of the where it is, you know, it's sort of in that Vegas uh, showboat arena. Um, not a ton of people. Um, it's for TV, so it's mic'd a little bit differently. Sometimes you hear the crowd go up a little bit for things. Sometimes you hear them get a little frustrated at Bockwinkle. Like the first couple of times, he starts doing heelish things. But in general, I don't have a great sense of what that crowd was thinking um, throughout that match. Yeah, these really could just be people, you know, like I got it. I've, I, do, I just lost $175 at pie gal i'm gonna to need to just take a rest here and go to this wrestling show before i get back to losing money right you know like, if, like yeah. yeah you could imagine if something like this was in the cow palace or uh was in you know saint paul or something that it would have a a wilder atmosphere yeah i don't really remember a, yeah i even i mean you know i kind of always have these on kind of while i'm doing the podcast and you, you gotta see there are a lot of people just kind of the crowd kind of looks like a washed out lowbrow Vegas scene. It's always and a rough scene. They sat there for an hour, so good on them, but I'm not sure I believe, you know, Lord James Bleers and Ron Trongard when they're telling me that the ladies are all standing up for Kurt Henning and clapping for him or whatever. Yeah, they feel like a lot of ladies the ladies in these audience may not have done a lot of standing in yeah. their lives recently. Like they are feels like a lot of feels like a lot of ladies who might need some oxygen to stand. Um that, that that particular like low low I, mean, I don't know how much time much time you spent in Vegas in your life now I haven't spent no, no, spent, no. spent a ton of time and there's some moments and I've enjoyed myself in Vegas a lot of times I've gone but there's definitely like an underbelly in that in that uh, in those casinos that can be really grim. Um, I went to, I had my wife's uh, aunt has a place in Bullhead City. Arizona, which is right across from a part of Nevada that has not Vegas casinos. And we went to one of those once, like for to get some food when we were visiting her. And then that was like, that was like really grim. Like your non Vegas, Arizona border casinos. You're just looking like, God, it's everybody's sallow skin. It's just like, you know, all clearly losing money they can't afford to lose. It was, it was, it was like, I was like in there, I was like, man, I, I, I want to get out of here. I don't want to be any part of this scene. And it feels like the showboat in Vegas has much more of that vibe, you know, this, than you might see in other parts of this is at the Rat Pack going to this thing, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you can't really tell, and and that's a shame, but um, at the same time, you don't really need to, because it is TV, and there's a lot of close-up shots, and, and you know, you can see the emotion and the uh, selling and everything else on Bachwinkle and Henning all the way through, and sort of, if you just cling to that, and you make it, because I think a lot of that, I don't know about you, well, I do know about you, I, th- I think both you and I care more about what we think about a match than we do about what a crowd thought about a match. Yeah. Yeah, I there. I think there there are certain there are wrestling matches that in a vacuum wouldn't be great that are great because of great crowds. Uh, like I kind of I think that that can elevate things certainly, mm-hmm. but in a way. But I usually don't let it demerit things too yeah. much. Like if I'm enjoying what they're doing and the crowd isn't enjoying what they're doing as much, it's like all right, well I'm enjoying it. 
You know what I mean? I, 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 so if it didn't work for the people there, well, okay, it's working for me. Uh, but sometimes, obviously, if something does, I mean, a match with a super hot crowd can be really like, you know, something like uh, Midnight Express versus Bill Watson, the junkyard dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the crowd wasn't into it, it isn't like you'd be like, oh man, that match. But the fact that the crowd is going, you know, insane with every punch really can, you know, really makes it a memorable we saw, thing. We saw um, for a new footage Friday not that long ago, Midnight versus, I think it was Magnum and Dusty, and Dusty's running around with the fake chicken and everything else, and the crowd's up for everything. And, you know, there wasn't much, uh, it was 10 minutes, you know, there wasn't a ton of heat, you know, when the, the heels didn't get much time, is kind of what I'm saying. Right. But that crowd, you know, made that match, because Dusty was sort of so over the top. Right, well, Dusty's obviously a great example of a guy who you know, get so much of his is so entertaining to watch because he has that connection uh, with the crowd. But yeah, but like, but but otherwise, but you know, things could be great with a bad. I mean, I, I had a hard time watching pandemic no crowd wrestling. Yeah, like I couldn't yeah. do that. Uh, even if uh, really, even if the work was good, it was part of me just I can't. This is sterile and weird and. Yeah, because it's not an, it's not about the guys working in a vacuum. Usually in these situations, they're still working. They're doing the right things. They're working towards the crowd. They've just got a crowd that's not going up for them for some reason or another. You know, if someone's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that sort of is an impact. But if they're doing everything right and it's just not working, that's not on them necessarily. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, accurate. I uh, what what are your uh, let's you talk about wanting to th- th- this match working in sections. Yeah, yeah, so let's talk about the section. So the first section, it's, it's about 10-minute sections for the most part. The first 10 minutes or so is really that feeling out process. You know, Bonkwinkle tries the drop kick at the beginning, the little bit of trickery, which, you know, he was a baby face, but he was a tricky baby face. That's how he survived Hanson, sort of. He came to the ring with a bull whip, you know, because um, that's who he had to face. So he was still Nick Bonkwinkle. He was just the Nick Bonkwinkle that the fans now cheered. So right. that, that's the immediate moment that started the match. And then and, from there... And that's not an uncommon thing with, with wrestlers who have been around for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Eventually, just the fans are going to be into them. Yeah, right? they're not going to change their spots. They're, they're just going to be, you know, our villain instead of... Right, you know, it's evil. hard to be a 50-year-old heel. Yep. Right? I mean, usually if you've been around that long, they're going to love you, even if what you're doing is not... I mean, that's why Flair always wanted to work heel and kind of hit the end of his career wouldn't work so well it's like oh you're saying i grew up with you i'm not gonna boo you right i mean and not to deal with necrocosis as well even when he was shooting with rush he was still sort of that uh roosh he was still sort of that trickster god you know right and the fans loved him even though he was a rudo that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean you're a heel right exactly it's different in mexico right you can certainly yeah. be a, a beloved rudo right like it, it, the not hated even though what you are that's kind of it's a different thing right it uh, than really an American heel. So anyway, after that, you know, Henning does get some quick athletic stuff and Bachwick shuts him down and that's when you get the headlock for the first 10 minutes where they really work that headlock. Um, Out of the headlock comes, you know, the arm work where Henning gets an arm drag out of nowhere because he's he's sort of picked up the pace and he starts working over the arm for the next, you know, 10 minutes or so. Yeah, and short, that, really great looking. I'm a, yep. a huge short arm scissors guy. And love, a sh- love a short arm scissors section. Just grind that up. And the way that it transitions out of that is that Bockwinkle tries the arm out um, of the short arm scissors and gets the leg. And it's just, it's a really cool transition, which I don't think I've ever seen before, where he turns that um, sort of uh, short arm scissors into kind of just a, a toehold, sort of a that sort of thing and then he moves that into that kind of double toe the cross toe where he's really wrenching it yeah and sort right. of from minute 20 to 30 with some arm work in the middle where um bach has to go back out to the floor come back in slow things down then get a drop toe hold out of nowhere which he then transitions into sort of that other move that it's kind of a sort of arcing toe hold sort of thing um that's leg work and you know that's really what it is and then at the 30 minute mark or so things um, break out and uh, you get the sleeper and the sleeper goes through the ropes it sort of clears the pallet um, both guys bump to the floor and then from there you know it, you from 30 to 40 you kind of get um, dueling work where you know Henning goes for the arm Bachwinkle goes for the leg and that's when you get Henning sort of just banging on 
the arm to get out of a hold, that kind of thing. You know, they're really showing more desperation at that point, um, where Bockwinkle has an arm lock on him and he's able to sort of get Henning out and slam his head into the stairs. You know, so, so the stakes just kind of keep rising. You know, throughout the match, Bockwinkle has been cheating more and more. You know, Henning has been sort of showing, I think, a little less patience. Um, and then at the 40-minute mark, you get the pile driver right after that. And, um, you know, it sort of breaks into that where the 40 to 50 has certain bits of desperation escalating. Like you get the first figure four attempts from Bockwinkle, which Henning doesn't try to get a roll up out of them. He just grabs the hair and he sort of tosses him and it's sort of a small package, but it's almost like a throw because he's just so desperate not to get into the figure four, which kind of plays into things later because when you get to the 50 minute mark, Henning kind of pushes past. He kind of shows that he has the athletic advantage despite everything Bockwinkle's done so far, even as he's selling. And that's when he goes for the figure four himself and Bockwinkle pushes him out and he blades himself. And that blading is kind of the great equalizer for the last next five minutes or so when Bog is targeting the wound. He's trying to slow things down. He's trying to run out the clock. And then Henning comes back with the axes and gets finally, you know, and we'll talk. I think we should talk about the bloody section in a second because that's what the book's all about. But um, and then it goes into the figure four and the finish. So th- there's these clear periods that sort of. You can go back to them. You can go forward to them. Um, you know, there's the transition where Henning sort of, um, because Bach is trying to stall and he's trying to get the king of the mountain around the 40 to 50 minute mark, that's when Henning's able to start working on the leg himself because um, Bachwinkle is showing vulnerability and he, he makes a mistake and Henning pulls his legs out and grabs his knee and slams it against the post. So there are these sort of pretty set periods where that all add up to be a complete hole in a way that a lot of those, you know, 60 minute flare matches don't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really make, w- makes me wish we had, I mean, I'm sure Bach would go worked a million 60 minute draws yep. and you get a sense that he's a guy who that's gotta be his, he's, there's probably matches this good that we'll never see that work 60 against sure. other people too. I mean, just the end of the, end of the match where he keeps on, checking his wall he keeps on tapping yeah. his wrist yep like you're not gonna it's not gonna happen a 60 minutes is a win for me kid mm-hmm. right and you know let's but how much time is left and then he starts you know beating on him and he really is like it's uh i, I love that it's kind of like a uh you know the sand's coming from the hourglass for you and there's nothing you can do about it and he does it at the 37-minute mark, too, um, which is just, it's funny because that's showing the desperation. You know, later on, it's a little more confident. Do you think he can ride up the clock? And, and this match is all about him riding up the clock at the end. But, you know, there are times where Henning, because of his use, because of, you know, his athleticism, it was all about Bockwinkle as sort of the lion who, who was facing this young competitor. And could he hang on? Yeah, he's really great. Uh, he is so good at, at as a 51 year old against the young athletic. I mean, just incredible. I just, the, uh, what, what do I, the reactions I need to have the, the moments where I feel like I'm out gone, the moments where I can kind of catch a, a breath or catch an advantage. Uh, you know, like it, obviously he gets a little more heelish by the end. It's funny that Henning is the one who ends up turning heel in this feud because obviously he, he, it, this feels like a, a setup for Bachwinkle to do it, right? Sure. But at the end of the day, Bachwinkle is just being Bachwinkle. You know, you know who he is, you know what he is. He was the same as a babyface against the Bisco and those kind of short sprints that they had. He was the same against Hansen, where, you know, he was just sort of, he was sort of bringing it to Hansen in a way that a lot of people um, don't. And then he's just doing the same thing against Henning. You know, he's 51, you know who he is with Henning. This was his shot. This was his big chance. And, you know, he's a guy who had been abused by Bockwinkle in certain matches over the years, you know. And and now he had to deal with the fact that the crowd was split. A lot of them were going for Bockwinkle, even though Bockwinkle was the one who was cheating on him. And that he went the whole hour with him. And he had him in the figure four at the end. And and the blood was coming down. And he hit the axe like six or seven times. And he still didn't win. And, and, you know, and, and that's what did it. That's what drove him. It was... You know, it's it's probably the last great thing that the AWA did was was this heel turn where he takes the um, thing of quarters or whatever from Zabisco and he turns because you know he 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 was a youth who saw no other path forward. Um, the world had um, judged against him and, and it was unfair. 
And this, this was the only way he could get that belt. Yeah. I, I mean, it really does feel like we, we missed out on a cool Kurt heading. A long, cool, you know, four or sure. five years of cool Kurt heading. Where instead he's stuck fighting like Mitch Snow, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was. A, I mean, I understand why the AWA didn't last. I mean, they're obviously, you know, Ganya was somebody who had an idea and wasn't willing to adjust that idea no. at any point. And even though, you know, they obviously, ESPN, I think, is a big, I mean, that's a big get that you're on ESPN at that period, right? Uh, you know, obviously, it uh, was a primacy as a cable company mm-hmm. thing, but they were never really able to figure out how to even adjust past the 70s. No, I mean, they became sort of a TV producing show for a couple of years there, and they weren't really touring. They weren't really doing anything. And, and that was about it. Yeah, we talked about it. This match gets, I mean, for a match, there's no blood. It goes mm-hmm. to no blood to a lot of blood. Yep. I mean, Henning is really, really, there are really like pools on his forehead. And yeah. Bakri gets pretty bloody too. Uh, he, he does, yeah. He takes about two or three of the axes and, in. It's funny because if you look out in the crowd, you can see a couple of people catching blade, and they sort of they go to each other and they kind of point at each other. But after that, it really goes. And and you know, Bach works on him for a couple of minutes, um, really targeting the wound, which is you know the stuff we like, um, just trying to run out the clock sort of by punching that that wound over and over again. But then when Henning takes over and he just hits the axe over and over again, there's a moment. You, you know, when Chris drew the um, figure four. I mean, that's obviously the moment to draw in this match. But if you're gonna pick one other. It would be when he hits the axe and Bachwinkle falls on his face and the bloody Henning just falls on him like he's Kamala. You know, he's pinning him <laughs> right. on his back, which you, I've never seen that, I think, in any other match where someone is so exhausted and so, you know, just falling on their opponent, but their opponent's facing the wrong direction. And it's just just a bloody mass of bodies. Um, and it's, you know, that's the moment where Henning would have won the match if Bachwinkle had just fallen on his back instead of his front. Yeah, and you do get a sense of me with that heel turn. This is something you probably, the idea of a guy who watched this over and over again, I thought, oh, there. If I had yeah, only he, done this, if I, had only, if I had only done this, this was my chance. Yeah, um, that was a moment. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, really, you know, watching it again for this podcast, I mean, watched it for the book, obviously, I hadn't seen it, apparently for nine years, and really this was that long ago, and, and then I think I probably, I think I was something, but even before that, I probably only watched it in 1986. Um, man, I mean, just so great, and I, I think, pro- even though finishing number one on the a- AWA side, I think probably an underrated match. Um, like, this is up there with the absolute best stuff of the entire decade right like where would you put yeah. this in your opinion for matches of of the 1980s full stop i i would put it top five um no question and, and you know it's it's a tricky match for me because i watched this and i see what they did and i see how they made everything matter and how they were in the moment at every point and sort of made everything resonate um and made everything make sense from from minute one to minute 60 and like i said you can go back and you can pick minute 42 and you, I, I could explain to you how this probably made sense in the whole context of the match. And I can't do that with a lot of other great matches in that same way where they're just trying to sort of kill time. Where they're kind of building things up and they're not so in the moment. So I always look at other matches and I'm like, look, if these two could do it for 60 minutes, why can't you do it for 10? You know? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think Nick, Nick Bockwinkle isn't, 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 you, he's a, he can't compare them. No, you right? can't. I mean, that's the thing. It's like once in a lifetime. Yeah, Kurt, he could do it, but the, the reason other people can't is because they're not, they're not Nick Bockwinkle. No, but, but so often they don't even try. They're just getting their stuff in. Yeah, and so, he, so I, I think he's a guy who uh, he is is one of those things where you think, man, if we only had, if we only had this stuff, he's one of those wrestlers where you just look, man, if I just had a little more. And, and we know some more exists. We know that there's probably, you know, some long matches with Tito, a match with Tommy Rich in Houston. You know, we, we know some of this stuff exists. But for the most part, I think we got a lot of what we're probably going to get. In Houston. Uh, so uh, so people who are uh, filling out their Segunda Caída podcast bingo card or drinking game, this would be the point where we uh, scream it um, at uh, Billy Corgan. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Give me the Bockwinkle Corgan, you piece of shit. <laughs> it's not asking for much, you know? Do we have a lot of the, his 87 All Japan tour? I'm looking oh, over the- Nick Bockwinkle's cage match here. I don't remember seeing any of his 87, like, like his post-AWA 87 uh, All Japan tour. Did you know that was something that happened? Yeah, we got some of that. Um, do we have his Kawada singles? I do no. We do not have his Kawada singles. <laughs> not that I know. Really. Uh, yeah, I would know. We don't have his Kawada singles. Not his no. Kawada singles. This is a. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking. You know, also for your drink card, the point where Phil starts looking at cage <laughs> match. Uh, uh, your uh, he's got multiple two Kawada singles in '87. He's got a uh, Austin Idol Dick Slater Bachwinkle against uh, Kiyosato Fuchi and Fuyuki Six Man. Uh, which is intriguing to me. Um, yeah, most of that stuff we do not have. We don't have, we don't have that. that, that I, it, it feels like, I don't know if that's going to be good, but it's something I want to see. I'm kind of a, the six man of Austin Idol, Dick Slater, Nick Bockwinkle. It's a pretty great six man tag. Okay, the deal with Bockwinkle is that every time we get one of these new matches, it was always true with Houston. I always kind of come into it thinking, okay, is this a match that's going to be the one that shows me that maybe, you know, there's there's a chink in the armor you know something's not going to work out maybe maybe he's not as good as i think he is and every time that i see something especially from the 80s on i'd see no no he was that good i mean that, that's all it is he was just that good so this is something i do you, are you do you know that they worked at a a, a house show battle royal in the wwf and yep. eight does that something exist your house so that's the battle your legends with- house show battle royal with lou Thez and yeah that's the battle royal where the bad feelings that randy savage had for vince cropped up because he wouldn't put his dad in it i think i think that's what all all that stems from um that that one battle royal i could be wrong it could be a different battle royal but i think that's the one where it is but yeah i mean like i really like listening to the couple of um msg shows or whatever else that we have bockwinkle announcing for in the wwf uh, because he, he sort of looks at wrestling and he talks about the wrestling the same way that he wrestles. So that little WWF run, we only have maybe six or seven shows that he announces on. It's fun to listen to. Because oh, he was, did you, he did some WCW. He was, I know he was the president. Yeah, he was just, I mean, that was Hogan giving back for, you know, Bachwinkle taking such good care of him in the AWA and probably Bischoff's reverence. You know, because Bischoff always talks about, um, putting together compilation tapes at the end of the AWA and being wowed by all the Nick Bockwinkle matches. So that that's all that was. Yeah. He was just on screen a couple times. He got Vader got to beat him up once, that kind of a thing. So I'm looking I did I did the the cage match uh thing where I just put in his thing and then I put in draw. So I'm curious of what other uh he had a, a 1956 45 minute time limit draw with Jungle Boy. I don't think Jungle Boy has enough stuff to work 45 minutes. No, I mean, he, had the, he, had the, he had that, especially in 1957. I mean, he's pretty young now, so 1956, he would have been minus 50 or whatever. No, maybe, maybe it was his dad. Oh, no, no, that wouldn't be it. That wouldn't be it. Some good facial emotions when he didn't get the pen uh, in his draw. <laughs> oh, no. I'm trying to think of some other, looking at some other... Nick Bockwinkle, and I don't know, some of these are shorter draws, 15-minute draws. Um, a couple, a couple, in a series of draws against Jungle Boy. Um, but I'm looking through the uh, 70s. Um, he had a two out of three falls at Honolulu against uh, Professor Tanaka. It'd be interesting to see what he got. Professor Tor Tanaka's not a guy I, I think of as... Uh, a guy who's got 60 minutes worth of stuff. Though, he's got to be younger than what we think. If it's, where are you, in the 50s? No, I'm back in the 60s, 60s. now. Okay, yeah. Now, this Hawaii, I wish we had Hawaii footage in, to some big degree, because that's the big hole. You know, there's so much, all these great wrestlers would go to Hawaii on vacation, and we got nothing. Yeah. Um, Try to think, look at, look at some other... Uh, Lonnie Maine in the 60s, mm-hmm. that could be interesting. Um, I did all. He did a sixty-minute draw with Lawler in uh, January '87. Uh, I always really liked the stuff we've seen with those two oh, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I I can imagine that they that those guys going sixty. But I, it's hard to see. You know, not all. And he went to he did sixty against Lawler in '79 too. 
what we have is um, someone pieced together uh, through three different pieces of footage, like maybe a 48-minute Jim Brunzel match from earlier in the 80s, which, um, you know, Brunzel's a guy who looked pretty good in the AWA set as well. Um, and that match is, is good. It, it's a good, it, I don't know if it goes to a draw or if it just, he wins it in like the 50-minute mark, but, but you know, that came together good. But we, we don't have a ton of other stuff um, that long for Bockwinkle. Yeah, we've got, he's got a Chavo draw in 77, got Terry Funk draw in Houston in 77. Oh. God damn you, uh, a Lothario draw in Houston. Oh, come on. And, uh, he worked, and, and then look, he looks like he just did the circuit in uh, June, July, and, uh, and August 77, doing time limit draws with Billy Robinson. So it looks like yeah. there's, there's like, in this period, like, in that period, like, seven time limit, 60-minute time limit draws with Billy Robinson in Minneapolis and Denver and Milwaukee and Winnipeg and Chicago, Davenport, Iowa. Um, it's, it's funny. We're, we watch all these long matches now because of the catch. You know, most right. of the singles matches go about 30, and sometimes the tags go 40 or 50. And again, you know, the matches are great. The individual work in any moment is great, and sometimes you get really good ebb and flows, and occasionally you'll get something like like we had this week with the uh, Bocard versus uh, Cohen match, where you'll get sort of a story that goes throughout. But for the most part, you know, you don't get those kind of narratives. So we're watching long matches, but not long matches that sort of tell this deep a story. Right. I mean, I just, that's what I mean. It's like when you look at this stuff, it's like, man, I bet he worked a really, I mean, yeah. it looks like he worked Tito Santana and some draws, including one in Houston, Billy. Yep. Uh, uh, but, uh, in, or, uh, but something like 60 minutes against Dewey Robinson in, in the Maple Leaf Gardens. Like, I just can visualize, like, that guy feels like he, Paco uh, feels like he could do some interesting things. With Dewey Robinson for 60 minutes. Not again, the guy who I, I got some time for Dewey Robinson, the missing link, in case people don't uh, know that. I've got some time for the missing link. He's a guy I like. He's not a guy I think could, feels like he's got 60 minutes in him. No. But it feels like I bet that's good. Like I bet Bachwinkle figured out a way to work a coherent, mm -hmm. entertaining, deep, laden 60 minute match with, uh, with Dewey Robinson or Andre the Giant. We worked also in 79 for 60 minutes. Another guy I love, but I don't think of necessarily as having 60 minutes of stuff. And he was always, and we don't really get to see it too much in, in this show, but in or this match, but he was always very adaptive to the crowd. You know, speaking of um, Maple Leaf Gardens, one of my favorite Bachwinkle moments is that he's wrestling Martel, who has won the belt from him. And the fans just, you know, weren't behind Martel as much as you think they would be. And, um, They've got a hold on, and Martel can't get out of the hold, and someone shouts out, boring, and he shouts right back at Martel. Hey, Martel, you're boring the crowd. You know, so <laughs> it's sort of, he, he turns it into a way to get more heat um, and put the heat, everything on Martel as opposed to being on the crowd. Oh, that's so really, that's just, clever. <laughs> it's stuff that he does all the time. If you take a look at what he's doing and the way he's sort of uh, in the moment and enjoying himself and kind of living the crowd. Yeah. So. Yeah, Martel, you bum. Do some work. Yeah. <laughs> you're country and you're boring them. What's going on? Yeah, come on. It's supposed to be entertaining. I thought, I thought people liked you. <laughs> That's really funny. Um,. Uh, yeah, so uh, do you have sort of sort of final thoughts on, th on this match or these guys? No, I think it's a match people should watch. I think um, if they haven't seen it already, I think they should give it a chance despite the length. Um, I think people I think people do learn a lot from Bachwinkle right now. He seems to be a wrestler that a lot of other wrestlers seem to be watching, um, either for his promos and the way he holds himself and carries himself as a champion or for what he actually does in the ring. Um, to me, the most important thing... I like matches that make sense, but I like matches where the wrestlers are engaged and they're fully into it and you can't really see the strings. And, and, you know, this match, I don't think at any point you really see the strings, even though it is broken down to those sort of 10-minute chunks and they are listening to, to the timekeeper and what's being said there. You, you don't really ever feel um, that anything is inorganic, is what I would say. Um, and when the blood comes in at the end, it just, it, it, you know, it shows the whole point of the book is that blood can elevate wrestling. And it can it can drive emotion. It can, uh, you know, make something that was already great even better, and, and just take it way over the top. And that's what happens in this match. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, with, the, with that idea, I, we've done a lot of comparing Bakwa called a flare uh, in this podcast. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not here to, to bury Ric Flair. I love Ric Flair. He's an important part of my life in some ways as a, mm-hmm. as a child and certainly a wrestling fan. You know, obviously, not, I'm not condoning his, uh, air, his airplane etiquette or anything like that, but as a, as a, as a performer, I certainly have a lot, of, uh, a lot of time for Ric Flair. But I do, you know, Flair is a guy who would do the late blade job as a thing he would do, right? You see that in a lot of flare matches. The end of a match blade job. And it, and a lot of times they would feel kind of tossed on. Yeah, well, I mean, that's flair in general. Again, I think flair had an amazing talent at almost any moment he would do what was best for the crowd. He would do what would be most entertaining. He would do, you know, what would be most exciting. Flair was very good at that. Um, and it doesn't always give you what's most meaningful. And what gives you, you know, a greater whole. Yeah, and, I, and so I think it's interesting to compare the sort of value of your last-minute blade job in this match versus your last-minute blade job in a flare match. Like, here mm-hmm. it really is something that, that turns this match to 11. In a lot of ways, we're there, just like, oh, no, weird, Flair's bleeding a ton in this thing where he didn't really bleed before. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like it fits. It matters as much to what's going on outside of you get the crowd may come to see Ric Flair bleed, yep. and so he's going to give it to him. Um, here this was like, yes, we're going to turn these last 10 minutes into this, you know, uh, into the last, you know, into the final of 12th round of a heavyweight title war. And that's what it's going to feel like, right? Like these guys are going to throw out everything they could possibly throw out in any moment. Uh, Bachwick could lose the title or Heading could lose his greatest opportunity at it. And it's going to really, you're going to really be on a roller coaster in a way that, you know, I can't really even remember at this level in almost any other long draw. Yeah. And, when you think about it, the stakes, when you look at what Flair is doing, I mean, the NWA title means so much more than the AWA title in 1986, you know, December. So the fact that they're... But not the, here. Here, the, nothing yeah, in wrestling here, ever meant more making, than that. It means something. It's, it's that much more challenging, and, and they, they knock it out of the park. So. All right, Matt, where can uh, people, I mean, I know where people can follow you, but why don't you tell them where they can follow you? Yeah, so, you know, I, I um, don't have a huge social media um, presence or anything like that. If you want to find me, there's two places to find me. Go to Segunda Caeta. Um, I'm with you every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning for the French Catch stuff. I'm there Friday night, Saturday morning, where we watch three new matches that we've found somewhere on the internet because um, there's always new old wrestling to find on New Footage Friday. Um, and if you want to find me anywhere else, you go to the DVDVR board, which still exists, and you go find me. You know, it, it's. It, I think in 2021, there's still a lot of value in discussing wrestling on a message board. You get longer posts, you get some back and forth. Uh, you know, it's not all about necessarily cutting a promo on someone else on Twitter to get the likes. So, um, yeah, th- those are the places. Um, but, but, yeah, we we watch new French catch, new old French catch, and new old footage every week, and it's awesome. Yeah, what do we have? What do we have? Light. I mean, I'm putting this out uh, Thursday, so Mm -hmm. this week this isn't going to be banked. So, uh, what do we have this Friday for new footage? Friday for people to look forward to if they're looking to hear us talk about some wrestling that they've likely never seen before. So, a whole bunch of South African footage from the '80s um, has popped up, and there's a Matt Bourne match that we're going to check out. I don't even know against two. Um, I think we're going to do some more of the Russians in New Japan. We got to figure that one out. And I think what we have a Slim J match. We've got a Slim J versus Azriel Barbwire match yeah, so, from NWA Anarchy, which is my what well, my single favorite place to plumb for wrestling that it hasn't really been out there. Now that they've really started outloading a ton of things on there. Uh, I think the the hidden great uh, wrestling of the 2000s was uh, Cornelia Georgia. So I'm very, Slim J is a guy who, if he's in a brawl, I want to watch it. So, so where else on the internet are you going to get you know those three yes. unique disparate matches? Come on. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, thank you. Uh, always, right. I always enjoy chatting with you, uh, my friend. And this was a this is appreciate you coming on. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Way of the Blade.